When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Simon Long, Finance and Economics Editor at The Economist. Coming up, how will Exxon cope post-Rexit? The trouble is, is that what's bullish for shale is slightly bearish for the oil price. And Claudia Golden from Harvard outlines her report into the pay gap for women. The gender gap in earnings is not one statistic. It is a statistic that changes over the life course of women. But to start, every year on the eve of its budget, India's finance ministry produces its economic survey. This year, particular interest has been sparked by the inclusion of a chapter on a universal basic income, or UBI. That's the idea of introducing a welfare payment available to all Indians and paid directly to them. I'm joined now from Mumbai by Stanley Pinyal, The Economist's South Asia business and finance correspondent. Stanley, I I know you've been looking at the economic survey and I've seen that on on Twitter you tweeted that on the UBI, uh, what... what the, uh, the conclusion is it should be taken seriously, but not literally. Could you uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, that's right. So even the chief economic advisor, uh, Arvind Subramanian, who, who, who wrote the report, says, you know, this is an idea which needs to be discussed, but it's clearly not something uh, which is going to be implemented immediately. Uh, that's going to be a bit of a disappointment for some people who had hoped that Narendra Modi, the, the reformist Indian prime minister, uh, might have another trick up his sleeve. Uh, back in November, he famously uh, demonetized uh, most of the banknotes in circulation, uh, which caused a, a great deal of economic turmoil, but was justified uh, in, in his supporters' mind by the long-term economic impact it might have. And some people had hoped that, that UBI, as it's known, might be something similar in a way uh, that, that would be uh, radically change uh, the, the economic foundation of India and change the the redistribution uh, of income across the country. Indeed, economists and others for decades have lamented India's aid welfare system, haven't they? Because it's so prone by corruption, so inefficient. And this seems a clear, straightforward answer to all those problems. what's, What's the obstacle? So so first, let me go through the pros. As you point out, the corruption and the inefficiency in the system is is legendary. The report says that there are 950 schemes that seek to redistribute income in India. Some of them are very big, such as food distribution or fertilizer subsidies, rail subsidy, and so on. But many of them are very small and inefficient. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why uh, the idea is popular, um, certainly with, with the right. It's popular with the left because income redistribution, especially in India, which is obviously a very poor country, uh, a little can go a long way. Uh, the difficulty with UBI in India is the same difficulty as with UBI anywhere. It's very expensive. Even if you give people um, what, what is considered to be the poverty line in India, which is um, about $200 a year, uh, so, so way below the $1.90 a, a day a definition that, that international organizations use, you still end up with something like 12 to 13% of GDP that needs to be spent on this uh, universal basic income. And that, that is basically more than the entire federal budget in India. So it, it's 
pretty unclear how you would pay for it. Uh, the only obvious way is you would have to get rid of all the other subsidies. Uh, so no more food subsidies, no more fertilizer subsidies, no more electricity and gas subsidies. Uh, and those are uh, very popular with some people and replacing them with cash while it is something which is popular with economists, is, is not necessarily politically feasible. And the idea is it would be truly universal, is it? That it wouldn't be means-tested and given only to those who really need it? Well, part of the difficulty with the system now is that uh, the means-testing is terrible. So you have people who pretend that they're poor uh, and therefore get subsidized food, electricity, water, and so on, while at the same time, which is perhaps worse, uh, people who are genuinely poor uh, don't qualify uh, for these things. So that's the idea behind making it truly universal. However, making it universal is what makes it really expensive. So there are different ways in which you could have it not be completely universal. Uh, One of them is to say, actually, people would need to opt into it. uh, And it might be an inconvenience or a headache for people above a certain income to go pick up a payment uh, every week. So a a particularly well-off Mumbai dweller might might not agree to stand in queue every week uh, to pick up a few dollars. Another uh, possibility would be to have uh, pilot schemes where, where only some regions would, would qualify for it. But by far, the, the worst solution, which unfortunately is part of the economic survey, is that you would have yet another exercise of deciding um, who's rich and who's not rich. And it's not clear to me at all why that exercise would be any, any less corrupt or problematic than existing schemes. So despite the progress that's been made on financial inclusion and despite the digital ID cards, this would still mean standing in line once a week or once a month, or whatever, to get the money? It, it depends how, how it's implemented. But you mentioned, you mentioned the d- digitization of banks uh, and, and ID schemes, and I think that's potentially a, a really important element of, uh, of it. Pretty much every Indian now, something like 99% of adults, have uh, digital IDs, uh, a scheme called Aadhaar, in which everybody has a 12-digit number, and, and tied with that is the ability to receive money in, in a bank account. There are several hundred million of, of these kind of low-cost uh, bank accounts that have been opened. So it is now possible, in fact, it's relatively easy now for the Indian government to give money to, to everybody in the country. But that doesn't take away from the difficulty of if you're not going to make it universal, you need to decide who gets how much. And that has always been a problem for India and, and would continue to be a problem. So to, to, to boil it down, either it's universal, in which case it's unaffordable, or it's not universal, in which case you run into the same problems you have now with subsidies. Stanley Pinyal, South Asia business and finance correspondent, thank you very much. And for those of you interested in following Stanley on Twitter, his handle there is at Spignal, S-P-I-G-N-A-L. But what do you think? Is a UBI a good idea? Is it even feasible in India? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Now, one company directly affected by the election of Donald Trump is ExxonMobil, the world's largest private oil company. Its former chief executive, Rex Tillerson, has joined the new administration as Secretary of State. His successor at Exxon, Darren Woods, has taken the helm at a busy time for the company. It's just done a huge deal to double its acreage for shale oil development in the Permian Basin in Texas. Henry Tricks is The Economist's energy and commodities editor, and he joins me now in the studio. Henry, shortly after this programme is recorded, Exxon are likely to announce their quarterly results. We don't know what they will be, but in general, is this a bullish time for the company? 
it is a moment when the company's fortunes, at least in terms of its earnings, are likely to turn around because the oil price has recovered. It's come off its lows of last year. These won't, I'm sure, be particularly good results because through most of 2016, the oil price was low and ExxonMobil suffered um, during the year from low prices and inability to find sufficient reserves to replace all that it had produced and a pretty hefty debt load that has raised questions about dividend coverage. It was the first year when ExxonMobil lost its AAA credit rating, for example. Having said that, Darren Woods, the new chief executive, takes over a company that is pretty much in a class of its own in the oil industry. And it's a company that's has recently made some big discoveries, um, a very big oil discovery in Guyana, and now this new shale deal. So there's a sense, I guess, that ExxonMobil, the, the, the worst is behind it. Do we know yet if Mr. Woods has any plans for a change in direction of the company? Is he going to be a very different CEO from Rex Tillerson? It's funny, in the tradition of ExxonMobil, which is about as open and transparent as the US Marines, We know very little about Darren Woods. I I just looked up his um, Wikipedia page, which is three lines long, and there's almost nothing about him besides the fact that he comes from the refining side of the business rather than the upstream production side, which marks a big change in the way that in, in the sort of the background of the chief executive. That said, don't really know whether that is going to mark a big change in in ExxonMobil. Already there's been a couple of of announcements um, that are interesting. For example, the company has just brought a climate specialist onto its board, which suggests that, at least presentationally, it's addressing some of the criticisms that have been levelled at it for not openly embracing questions of climate change, for not, for not openly incorporating concerns about climate change into the way that the company's operated. But beyond that, I'm not quite sure what we can expect of, uh, of Mr Woods, except for the fact that in true ExxonMobil tradition, he'll probably be a safe pair of hands. I think the last time we were talking about oil on this programme, it was to mark OPEC's agreement to cut production. How directly linked is that to Exxon's big investment in in shale oil? It's funny, it's a bit paradoxical, really, because um, Exxon's investment in this uh, shale oil field in the Permian Basin is, in a sense, very bullish for shale. It's it's a big vote of confidence by ExxonMobil in the ability to be able to produce fairly low-cost oil from Texas and New Mexico. The trouble is, is that what's bullish for shale is slightly bearish for the oil price. So the more that its bet works out for it, and the more shale production ramps up, the uh, less likely it is that the oil price will continue to rise. And uh, certainly since we last talked, since that OPEC agreement, there has been a huge rally in oil prices. But that rally seems to have stalled now, partly because the number of rigs in the Permian Basin continues to rise. And that suggests that the production is, is going up too. Henry Trix, Energy and Commodities Editor, thank you very much. Over the past couple of weeks, we brought you a series of special reports from the American Economic Association Conference in Chicago. 
One of the speakers was Claudia Goldin, an economist at Harvard University. Her latest work has been to study the pay gap afflicting women in employment. Claudia has been explaining more about her research to our economics columnist, Ryan Avent. You've been doing a lot of interesting work recently on women's employment, and uh, here at the conference there's a paper on the the gender wage gap. I guess to sort of set the the background here, can you tell us a bit about what's been going on with the trajectories of women's careers, how they've been changing over the last few decades? Well, I would say that uh, women's careers have been changing over the last century, not just the last few decades. In fact, if anything, uh, probably the last two decades have seen just continuation of what was going on before. So one of the most important changes is that by 1980 in the U.S., women were 50% of all undergraduates and bachelors. Today, women are greatly exceeding men in terms of their educational attainment in the U.S. And the same thing is happening just about all over the world. It's a very important change. And it means that women are moving into the most important professional careers. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that their earnings have been following the same trajectory. That's a very important point. And what, in your view, accounts for that continued uh, discrepancy in earnings? When we talk about the gender gap in earnings, we have to realize that the gender gap in earnings is not one statistic. It is a statistic that changes over the life course of women. So for most men and women, when they leave college, their earnings, while not identical, are pretty similar. As they get older, their earnings really do diverge, and one of the big divergences is when they pair up, some of them get married, they have kids, well, we see much larger differences then. So we really have to ask the question, what exactly is it about you know, having kids, being married, that means that women's earnings take a big hit? And there are a couple of things that come to mind. So the ones that make the most sense are that women do more at home, do more with the kids than men do. And what that means is that to the extent that women want more job flexibility, time flexibility, they don't want to be on call, they want to have more predictable hours, maybe fewer hours, even on an hourly basis, women are earning less. And one of the reasons is that Job flexibility is an amenity that you pay for, and in many of these jobs, getting that flexibility is relatively costly. Another issue, even without the kids, is that it may be that the husband's or the male partner's job takes precedence, and so women are tied movers or tied stayers. And the final set of reasons are the ones that we don't like to talk about that much, which have to do with, you know, bias, discrimination, other hindrances to women, particularly those with family. Now, when we take a step back and look at the labor force as a whole, is longer working lives, is that mostly about people finding satisfaction in their careers and not wanting to leave? Or is it about financial constraints? What, what do you think is the main factor there? So the main factor is that individuals, women in particular, who now are working much longer times when they're younger, keep on working. They find more identity in their work. They find that work 
In fact, uh, perhaps when they're 55 years old, their career is just taking off. That isn't to say that there isn't a group that got divorced, doesn't have a good retirement account, is financially uh, quite illiterate. That isn't to say that after 2008, some of their homes aren't underwater. But in fact, this change, this increase in women working longer predates the 2008 recession and problems in the housing market by about two decades. So it isn't going to be a big issue. Another, though, factor that's on the dark side of this, I've spoken about sort of the light side of women working longer, is that many of the women who have the smallest retirement accounts, the least amount of wealth, who in some sense would do well if they continued working, aren't in good health. So that group is the group that I would say is sort of being left behind in this. It's very interesting. Claudia Golden, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Absolutely. That was Ryan Avent talking about the women's employment pay gap with Claudia Golden of Harvard University. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com and do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. 